What time is it? I can feel the anticipation in the room. Can we all take a deep breath? So excited to be with you guys today. Today we're starting a brand new two-week series titled, What Time Is It? You know, lately people have been asking questions like, what is going on in the world? Are we living in the end times? How do we know if the end is near? This series, we're taking a look at scriptures that talk about what the Bible calls the latter days or the end of the age or the last days or how we oftentimes call it the end times. We're going to take a look at scripture to discern what time is it? What time is it as it relates to these things? And um, the purpose, I just want to say up front, the purpose of this series is to inform and to bring great hope. As much as possible, I'm, not, I'm going to try to not bring this topic with any kind of sensationalism or emotionalism, but I want to share knowledge, biblical knowledge on this topic so that we can be informed, so that we can discern what the Bible says about this topic. I also hope that in this series, and especially today, you leave with not just information, but hope great hope for the future. You know, end times is not this obscure, obscure Bible topic. It's not this random topic that's not mentioned much in the Bible. It is a major theme of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's over 3,000 scriptures in the whole Bible about end time events. When you take a look at the prophecies, prophecy is future information that the Bible gives us. Um, For every one scripture that gives future information about Jesus' first coming or prophecy about his first coming, there's eight that give information about his second coming. Out of all the Old Testament books, 17 of them reference something about the last days or about the Messiah coming. 23 of the 27 New Testament books talk about this topic. And seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament talk about this topic. It's not an obscure topic that we should avoid, but something that we should lean into to gain understanding. And I believe with all my heart that God has so much information. As I'm getting into this, as I'm studying this topic, really, we could talk about this topic for like three months. Um, We're going to talk about it for two weeks. But there's so much content, there's so much information, and you might ask why. I believe with all my heart it's because Jesus wants us in the know. He wants us to understand and to discern the times. It's interesting, at the end of Jesus' life, many of us are familiar with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday where Jesus rode in on the donkey and the believers laid down palm branches and they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a significant, powerful, prophetic moment that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, that the coming Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was an incredible moment that those who had ears to hear and eyes to see should have recognized what was happening. In that moment, the Pharisees looked at what was going on with the palm branches and everything, and they looked at Jesus' disciples, and they scolded them, and they said, quiet down your people. And scripture says, as Jesus was riding on the donkey, entering Jerusalem, he said this, Luke 19, 41 through 42, and then verse 44 also. 
It says, now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, especially you, or even you, especially on this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, you did not know the time of your visitation, So here is the Messiah, Jesus in the flesh, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies about himself. This moment of him riding in on the donkey was an important moment. And most of the city had no clue what was going on. They had no clue the hour of their visitation. And Jesus wept over the fact that they didn't know. So you see in that moment, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. which he often did because the Pharisees should have known better because they were the teachers of the law. They were the teachers of scripture. But there's one time that Jesus also rebukes the crowd, everyday people, everyday Jews who maybe didn't know as much about the scriptures, but they should have had some kind of knowledge about this specific topic. And it was about discerning the times. Let's check it out. In Luke 12, 54 through 56, Jesus said to the crowd that gathered around him, When you see a cloud forming in the west, don't you say a storm is brewing? And then it arrives. And then when you feel the south wind blowing, you say a heat wave is on the way. And so it happens. Jesus said to the crowd, you hypocrites, you're such experts at forecasting the weather. Who can feel when a storm's coming in? We all can, right? We can all feel the dampness in the air when a storm is coming. He says, you can discern the signs of the weather, but you're totally unwilling to understand the spiritual significance of the time that you're living in. The New New King James translation says it this way. Jesus says, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you don't discern the times? So our hope, our prayer in this series is that we could help discern the times better. We would be informed, we would be filled with hope, that we would be given tools to discover the spiritual significance of the times that we live in, to discern the times as Jesus so desperately wants us to be able to do. Let's pray and then we'll dive into it. Lord, we love you so much. God, we thank you for giving us future information, prophecies about what to expect in the future. God, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we don't want to be like the crowd and we don't want to be like the Pharisees who are dumbfounded and oblivious to the spiritual significance of their time. God, I ask that you give us eyes to see, enlighten our mind, give us understanding on this topic, and Lord, may it spark a fire in our heart on the reality of who you are, the reality of what you are doing on earth. God, we trust you. Holy Spirit, comfort us and guide us and illuminate our path, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, there's lots of content that we could be talking about in this series, Um, I'm going to launch into this topic with two foundational assumptions or foundational um, topics kind of assumed. I'm going to assume in general that we all have a general understanding that Jesus said that he's coming back and that there will be an end of the world. I'm not going to take time to take you through all the scriptures and try to prove that to you this morning for sake of time. If you want more information on some of those foundational doctrinal beliefs. I did a series on end times back in 2000, fall of 2019. Um, I talk about some of those more foundational things. So we're going to launch off with that assumption about what we're talking about. Um, Also, primarily what we're talking about in this series is upcoming events that the Bible predicts Jesus told us is going to happen. 
There's also other signs of like cultural things and behaviors of the world. I'm going to mention those here in just a minute, but we're not going to really camp out on them. We're really going to camp out on more how we can discern the times based on events that we know either already did happen or are about to happen. For example, um, there's lots of different, there's scriptures, maybe you've heard that in the end times there'll be uh, wars and rumors of wars. People are going to be lovers of themselves, different things like that. I'm going to talk about those signs right now just real quick, and then we're not really going to mention them again for the rest of the series. Go ahead and put that slide up. Here are some of the main places that some of these more behavioral signs, cultural signs are listed. Feel free to take a screenshot if you want. There's a couple different slides throughout the series you might want to take pictures of or screenshots of if you're watching online. The first reference is Matthew 24. Jesus is with his disciples, and the disciples ask him, Jesus, what are the signs of the end of the age? Jesus shares lots of things, some of them events that we're going to talk about, but some of um, these more cultural signs, he says, hey, at the end of the age, there's going to be an increase of deception. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be nation or race that goes against nation or race. There's going to be famines and pandemics and earthquakes. Then in uh, 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is teaching the young minister Timothy and tells him about the last days. He says, in the last days, there will be perilous or stressful times. And he goes on to really define what the people are going to be like in the last days. He says, the people in the last days are going to be lovers of self and money, they're going to be proud, blasphemous, unthankful, unloving, unholy. They're going to be disobedient to their parents, slanderous without self-control, brutal, despise what is good, lovers of pleasure rather than of God. They're going to have a form of godliness but deny its power. And they're always going to be learning but never come to the knowledge of the truth. And then the Apostle Paul says something a little bit different in 1 Timothy 4.1. He says, hey, in the latter times believers. And then he talks about believers. He says there's going to be some believers who depart from the faith, believing and deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy with their conscience seared. All right, you can pull away that slide for now. So there's a lot there, right? Those are some general things that God's saying, hey, when you start to see an increase of things, of these things in culture, that's a sign of the time. That's a sign of what would it be like in the last days or in the latter days. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because how we rate this is a little subjective. Like there's always been wars. There's always been rumors of wars. There's always been certain people that are lovers of themselves. And so, yeah, now we have selfie sticks and now we have Facebook. But like I suppose in the future people could love themselves even more than they do right now. So it's just... But it's signs, it's things that when you start to see those things that are listed, it's things that should make you go, huh, seems like people are really lovers of themselves lately. Huh, man, there's so many earthquakes and wars, I wonder, right? So there are definitely signs that we need to be aware of in addition to certain events that are foretold that will happen in the end days. And that's what we're going to spend the most of our time talking about this morning and then next Sunday as well. Um, so when it comes to end time events, in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel and Ezekiel have a lot of specific information. And then in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, where Jesus gives his end times discourse, and then of course the book of Revelation has tons of really specific information about end time events. 
And for the sake of time and to just this morning kind of give broad strokes on the topic, in a minute I'm going to show you guys a timeline, kind of of a summary of what those books talk about as it relates to um, end time events in scripture and how our knowledge of that can help us discern when it appears that we're getting closer to those events happening. And before we take a look at the timeline, I want to give a couple of disclaimers. The first is I'm not making any kind of bold assumptions of the day or the hour of Jesus arriving. Bible's really clear. The fa- only the Father knows that. Only the Father knows the day, the hour, the time that Jesus is coming back to earth. Jesus said that we should be able to discern it, but not know the exact day or hour. Um, there's certain things in scripture that we do know the timeline on. Like we do know there's going to be a tribulation that will last seven years. We do know that there's going to be a millennial reign of Jesus after the tribulation that will last for a thousand years. But then there's some other events that we're not exactly sure how long they're going to last. We're not, there's debate on the order of when the events happen. We're not sure how much time elapses between some of these events early on in the timeline. And so the timeline I'm about to show you might not be entirely to scale based on the distance between the events. You guys got it? Okay. So let's take a look at it. Um, go ahead and put that timeline slide up, and I'll walk you guys through it. Again, this one might be, if you want to go back and study, there's lots of scripture references on here. You might want to screenshot it at home. You might want to take a picture of it in person here. I'll refer back to this timeline next week as well. So let me just walk you through it briefly. We're going to do broad strokes this morning and then dive in much deeper um, this morning and then next Sunday also. You see, the first thing on the timeline is Israel becoming a nation. For most of all of our lives, Israel has been a nation, so this isn't a really big deal. But from Israel's Babylonian captivity until 1948, Israel was not an independent nation with their own leader. Ezekiel, in the time of the Babylonian captivity, prophesied that one day Israel would be its own nation and all of the Jews from around the world would be regathered and they'd have their own leader and all of that. It's a very significant moment that happened in 1948, the establishment of the nation of Israel. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Then you can see in the red font, it says, we are here. Israel's a nation, and so we're at the point in time after that has happened. Based on scripture, it appears that either the rapture of the church or the war of Gog and Magog is the next end time event to happen. The war of Gog and Magog is a war where um, Russia, Iran, and other countries come against Israel, and, and God miraculously protects them. We're going to talk about that in great detail next week. Then the rapture of the church, when God miraculously transports the church to heaven in a blink of an eye. We're going to talk about that more today. I believe that that happens, along with many biblical scholars, after the war of Gog and Magog, it could happen before. That's where some of the discrepancy on the order of these events is. Then you see the seven years of tribulation that starts with a peace treaty or some kind of peace agreement that this man or this person that the Bible calls the Antichrist, it's also called the man of sin, makes with the nation of Israel. And then there's these seven years of tribulation that many of you guys, you know, is why people are afraid of the end times, because of what happens in the tribulation. The first half, half of the tribulation is bad, but not really that bad. 
halfway through the antichrist, the first half antichrist is this peacemaker, everyone loves him, charismatic person. Halfway through, he does something on the temple that's an abomination and demands that people start to worship him. The last half of the tribulation is really, really bad, like COVID times a thousand. Then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back to earth in the clouds with his saints following him. Then there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth as the CEO and president of, the, of, of earth, and he locks up Satan for those thousand years. Then after that millennial reign, Satan is destroyed forever. There's a white throne jo- judgment for unbelievers. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and we spend eternity with Jesus forever. Amen. That's a lot to process. We could just kind of end right now, right? So all of those um, blue events on that timeline are ones that we're going to talk about in detail. Next week, we're going to talk about more about this whole, what's the big deal about Israel becoming a nation? We're going to talk about this war of Gog and Magog. We're going to talk about the Antichrist, this peace treaty thing, and this abomination in the temple thing. And then for the rest of today, we're going to talk about the rapture. Sound good? So again, I hope that this series is informative and that it's hope-filled. The most hope-filled thing about this topic of the end times is the rapture. And some of you this morning in person or maybe even online, you heard the word rapture and you're like, huh, what? What are you talking about? We're going to explain it here in a minute. So glad you're here. You're going to leave this morning with a lot more information on what the rapture is. Or maybe some of you here have a vague knowledge of what the rapture is. Maybe you don't believe it, or maybe you have weird feelings about it. I get it. I understand it. I hope that you have much greater understanding and hope in your heart by the end of this morning. Some of you here this morning, you're like a Bible scholar on the rapture, and you believe that it's either going to be pre-trib, and you have all the reasons why you believe it's pre-trib, or you believe it's mid-trib, or you believe it's at the end of the trib, or all kinds of ideas about that which is awesome, and we'll bring some clarity and, and see what the scripture says about it this morning. Amen? So I've got five things, five thoughts to chew on on this topic of the rapture. And the first one is this. Number one, the phrase caught up means to be miraculously transported from one location to another. The phrase caught up or, or caught away that the Bible uses refers to this mir- miraculous transportation through time and space. Check it out in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 through 8, a scripture that's oftentimes referenced for the rapture. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with a voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Such a great scripture. So what is that phrase caught up? We're going to be, Jesus is going to come back. The dead in Christ will rise first, those who have died before us. And then we will be raised up in the clouds and we'll be caught away with Jesus in the clouds and then be with him forever. And then we're supposed to be encouraged by this. (laughs) So we need to understand what this means, right? So caught up, the Greek word used in this scripture for caught up, it means to seize or to carry off by force. It means to snatch away. Like if... 
your kid was in the road and a car was coming, you snatched them away. It means to claim for oneself eagerly. Okay, so where are some other places in the New Testament where this Greek word is used to help us understand what it means more? The specific phrase, caught away, is used in Acts 8, where the evangelist Philip was ministering to this governmental leader called a eunuch, preached the gospel to him, and then scripture says he was carried away. He was miraculously transported from that place with the eunuch to a different location. It's the same phrase. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the same phrase, caught away, when he talks about revelation that he received from the Lord when he was caught away to heaven. And then in Revelations 12, 5, that same phrase is used when it's describing how Jesus, after he was resurrected, when he left earth and he was caught away to heaven. So it's clear through these scriptures that caught away means this miraculous transportation where someone is in one location and then all of a sudden, miraculously, they're in a different location. You guys tracking? Um, And Jesus is saying, encourage one another with this. You're going to be caught away into the clouds, miraculously transported into the clouds, and you'll be with me always. Encourage one another with this phrase. All right, we, we good? I've got four more points that are going to explain it more. But as it relates to discerning the times, I think all of us have been a little shocked maybe recently, especially like right at the end of COVID, we were all like finally coming back to our senses with COVID. And then all this talk about UFOs, were you guys there for it? And all of a sudden UFO talk and extraterrestrial beings. And now our Department of Defense has a new task force that works to identify and analyze unexpected occurrences of UFOs. What is the world going to be like when the church is raptured? I believe it's my my inference or my idea that they're probably going to say there was some kind of alien abduction. We don't know. But what we do know is that scripture says there's going to be this catching away. All of a sudden, in a moment, believers will be on earth, and then one moment they won't be, and they'll be in heaven. Okay? Number two, being caught up is different than coming on the horses. There's some confusion sometimes on this topic because there's different references to Jesus coming in the clouds, and they say different things. Like we just read this one that says that we're going to be caught up into heaven, but then there's other ones that talk about how we're going to be coming down from heaven with Jesus on white horses. Let's take a look at them. Revelations 19, 11, and 14 Um, John is having this revelation of the end times, and he says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he, Jesus, who sat on, on, on it was called faithful and true in righteousness. So this is Jesus coming in glory at the second coming. He judges and makes war. And then it goes on in verse 14 to say, And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So Jesus isn't coming back in the clouds by himself at the second coming. He's coming back with an army of people clothed in white on white horses with him. Based on other scriptures, you can assume that this is believers coming back with him because we've been washed clean of our sins, we're we're made pure because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But there's other scriptures that clarify that. If you look in Jude 14, it says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. This is happening at the very end of the tribulation. 
1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So this point is just clarifying that there's two different experiences that we're going to be a part of. We're going to be a part of the rapture of the church where instantly we are taken from earth to heaven like we saw in the first point in Thessalonians. But then there's a, sip, a separate moment. That, that will happen, I believe, pre-tribulation. And we'll talk about why I see that in scripture in a minute. Rapture will happen before tribulation. I believe it will happen after the war of Gog and Magog. We'll talk about that next week. We're going to spend seven years in heaven with the Lord. And then at the end of tribulation, there's a separate experience that we're going to be a part of where we come in the clouds behind Jesus on horses. Do you guys see it in scripture? Okay. Um, let's keep moving. This is my favorite point. Number three. Jesus is our groom preparing a place for us and will bring us to his father's house. So all throughout scripture, there's this metaphor of Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. All throughout scripture, there's parallels of this in the gospels and in the New Testament books. And so in John 14, Jesus links the topic of the end times rapture, Jesus' second coming, with this metaphor of him being the groom and us, the church, being the bride. Let's take a look. John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. Um, his father's house, right? God the father in heaven has many rooms. And if it were not so, I would not have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, at my father's house in heaven, then I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. When Jesus said this, he was using Jewish, traditional Jewish wedding language. The disciples, when they heard this, would have, understand, would have understood what he was saying, to go to the Father's house to prepare a place so that he could come back to get us as the bride of Christ. So just a little history. Jewish traditional marriages have three steps. Step one is the engagement. Back in the time of Jesus, this is what weddings were like, Jewish weddings. <clears throat> Step one was the engagement, where the groom would come to the bride's family, pay a heavy price to be in covenant with the bride, the soon-to-be bride. He would come, pay this heavy price. There would be a legal contract signed that says, legally, these two are married, although they're not totally together yet. A price was paid, a contract or covenant was signed, and then after that point, this is, you know, in the Christmas story, um, Mary and Joseph were betrothed to be married. They're in this moment. They were legally betrothed, but they had not consummated the marriage yet, okay? He was preparing a place for them at his father's house. So after the engagement, the contract, the covenant is signed. Then the groom leaves the bride. The bride stays with her family. The groom leaves the bride to go prepare a dwelling place for them at his father's house. It'd usually be an additional room at the father's house where they would consummate the marriage and live together forever. So, and usually that took a year. So they'd be engaged and then apart physically, although they'd be in covenant together, They'd be apart from each other physically until the dwelling place was done. Then once the dwelling place would, was done, the groom would come back to get the bride at an hour that she did not know. 
Oftentimes it was in the evening and he would come with his groomsmen and stand outside her house or her room and make a noise or blow a trumpet or do something so that she knew, okay, I'm coming to get you now. It's time to go. So the groom would come get his bride, take her back to his father's house where he had just made the dwelling for them to live together. The marriage would be consummated that evening. Then the third part of the Jewish wedding tradition is that then there would be a week-long wedding feast where the husband and the wife, the new husband and wife, would be at their father's house in their new dwelling place attached to the father's house, and friends and family would come. You know, we have a wedding reception that lasts like four hours. They have a wedding reception that lasts a whole week. Friends and family come, and they bring gifts, and they banquet, and they celebrate, and then on the last day of the week, there's a big wedding feast, okay? You guys see in the parallels? So Jesus came, paid the ultimate price to be in relationship with us, gave, shed his blood for the remission of our sins, that we might be in covenant with him. We are one with him all throughout the New Testament. We are in covenant with him. Jesus has never left us or forsaken us, but we're not physically with him, right? That's where we are in our relationship with Jesus right now. Jesus is saying in the scripture, I'm going to go prepare a place for you at my father's house in heaven, and then I'm going to come back and get you so that you can be with me in my father's house. That's the rapture. Jesus is going to come back. I have reason to believe it will be in the evening time, like it was traditionally in Jewish weddings, where he'll blow a trumpet, say, all right, I'm getting you. We're going back to my father's house, and we will finally be together physically and never apart again. Then a big reason why pre-trib might be the best doctrine to believe is because oftentimes that wedding feast lasted a week. And in, in, in um, prophetic language, a week usually represents seven years. I could go into detail about that, but you're just going to have to trust me based on stuff in Daniel that we know that the tribulation is seven weeks based on Daniel saying, or seven years based on Daniel saying one week. So our wedding feast, scripture talks about how there's going to be a wedding feast for the lamb and his bride, Jesus and his bride. I believe that while tribulation is happening on earth, we will be having our wedding feast in heaven at the Father's house with Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the last thing that, that ha will happen before J Jesus and us come with him at the second coming is that there's this loud party happening in heaven. It's the, it's the marriage, it's the, it's the supper of the wedding feast of, the, of Jesus and his bride. Right after that big wedding feast is when we come down with Jesus in his second coming. You guys tracking? Doesn't Jesus write the best stories? Like who, only he can write that. All right. Number four, why are we talking about the rapture? Number four, God has a precedence of always protecting his people from global judgment. When you look at the story of Noah, judgment came to the earth. The whole earth was flooded, but God protected Noah and his family from the flood in the ark. Set a precedence. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Sodom and Gomorrah were about to experience judgment for their, for their sins. But there were righteous people in the city, Lot and his family, and God took Lot and his family out to protect them from the destruction that was coming. God has a precedence of saving his people from global judgment. You even see Jesus saying this in Revelation 3.10. 
Jesus is talking to the faithful church, and he says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on earth. Jesus is saying, you're not going to be here when this whole trial comes on earth, the tribulation happens. You guys see it? Number five, last thought on the rapture, and then we'll close it up. In the book of Revelation, a lot of people know the book of Revelation is a book about end times events, and a lot of people don't want to crack it open because it's wild, right? The first couple chapters of Revelation is these letters written to the church, and then we see the tribulation starts to happen, and then Jesus comes back and some things that we saw on the timeline. The church is never mentioned during the tribulation time in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned before the tribulation in the letters to the church, and it's mentioned after when we come back with him in his second coming, but we're not mentioned during the tribulation. All kinds of reasons why we should have hope in this topic of the last days. You guys learning something this morning? Hope in the last days. That first scripture we read in Thessalonians talked about the catching away, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, and God is saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're talking about end time stuff, but I'm saying, I hope you're feeling comforted because there's something called a catching away in a rapture that we will be with the Lord forever in heaven. He's going to come back and snatch his bride before devastation comes to earth. Luke 21, 28, about end times events, it says, now when you see these things start to happen, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. Next week, we're going to be talking about all kinds of other events that I don't want to steal. You're going to want to come back next week. Um, but as we're talking about the events that are, are to come and that have already happened with Israel next week, we have to remind ourselves of this, that when we hear of these things happening, our response is to be comforted. When we hear of these things happening, our response should be lift up our head because our redemption draws nigh. Amen? Um, so as we study this topic, I hope that you're comforted. I hope that today you're leaving with hope and comfort because that's what Jesus said these scriptures should do for us in light of the rapture. But I hope also, like when you saw the timeline and we're talking about all this, it's like, wow, is this really happening? Like Jesus is really coming back. There's really going to be an end. Is there really going to be a rapture? This topic also should within us be like cause us to have awareness of the realness of this. Next week, when we start to talk about the events that are going to happen and some signs that we are already seeing of their nearness, it should cause a hustle. Sometimes people are like, oh, you're talking about the end times. That's just escape theology. Just Jesus rapture me now. But I believe it should be hustle theology because if you're a quarterback or I played basketball, if you're a point guard and you look on the clock and there's five minutes left in the game, you play a little differently than if you look up on the clock and there's five seconds left in the game, right? As we see the nearness of these events and signs of his coming, it should create a hustle in us. Like, God, I want to be ready when you come. When you come back, I want to be busy about the Father's business. I want to be a bride that is prepared for her groom. Can you imagine the bride sitting there with zit cream all over her face and just stuffed herself with a bunch of donuts or something? No, wrong time. You want to be a bride ready, busy about the father's business 
when he when the groom comes to snatch us away. Amen. Um, let's end with Matthew 25. Jesus spoke a parable about what we're talking about. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. Let's read it together and then we'll close. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet their bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps but no oil with them. But the wise took the oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going to be out. But the wise one says, no, lest there should not be enough for us and for you. But rather go to those people that sell and buy things and get some for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Verse 13, watch therefore, discern the times therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour in which the son of man is coming. The, the action step is clear through scripture. Watch, be aware, discern the times because Jesus is coming back and we don't want to be looking a fool when he does. We want to have our lamps and our oil. We want to be busy about the Father's business when he comes. No one knows the hour of Jesus' return, but we should live ready with lamps for our oil. So a topic like this can stir all kinds of questions in our heart, like, Jesus, when the rapture happens, am I going? Are you going to be snatching me? Or maybe you're a believer and, and you know that you're going to be raptured, but an honest question would be, God, am I going to be proud of what I did that day when the rapture comes? Am I going to be proud of how I was living for you in that season when you come back? Am I going to be ready? So we talk about some events next week that are going to be happening. It makes us ask ourselves, gosh, if the rapture is like the door is closed, like the scripture says, and then tribulation, people in the tribula tribulation will have a chance to be saved. It just will not be as easy as it is nowadays. Where are my loved ones? Where are my friends? Where are my family and my neighbors at when it comes to the relationship with the Lord? should cause us to get on our knees and pray more, right? It should cause us to invite our friends to church more. It should cause us to really be active in our faith and not have it be a private or a, a thing that doesn't show any action. When we're aware that Jesus is coming back and it very well could be in our lifetime, it should cause us to live differently. You know, scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you would be saved. We have the assurance of heaven. If you've called upon the name of the Lord and you've asked Jesus to be your Lord, to be the leader of your life, you can have assurance that when he comes to snatch up his bride, you will be there with him and he will be with him forever. But if you don't this morning, whether you're online or whether you're in person, we always close service with a prayer that we say as a church family, just Lord Jesus, you are my Lord. I believe that you came to die for me and I want to place you in the role of leadership in my life. 
Or maybe you did that a long time ago, but you haven't been living for him. This morning would be a great time to say, God, I rededicate my life. I want to go kingdom or bust. I want to live all for you because I believe you are coming back. And when you come back, I want to be living like I was anticipating your return. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. Jesus, we thank you for all these promises that we've read, that we should be comforted about the snatching away, about the rapture, about this miraculous transportation that you have for your believers, that you're going to protect us from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. God, like, like as a good groom, you're preparing a space for us at the Father's house, and someday you're going to come and snatch us to be where you are. And Father, I just ask if there's anyone in this room, if there's anyone watching online or listening to this later who doesn't have a personal relationship with you, then in this moment they draw a line in the sand and say, Jesus, I do believe that you died on the cross for my sins and I, I do believe that you are Lord. So I'm gonna make you Lord of my life. Come and be my leader. Come and be my Lord. I wanna live my life to please you. I want to be all out, kingdom or bust. Let every day I live be a day that I would be proud for you to come in the rapture that evening. With all eyes closed and head bowed, no one's looking around, but as a moment, an opportunity for you to have a, a line in the sand relation, or moment with you and the Lord. If you're here this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time or maybe rededicate your life. We're about to say a prayer as a church family, just saying, Lord, Jesus, be my Lord. If you want to join that prayer, would you boldly, with all eyes closed and head bowed, raise your hand and say, God, that's me. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's pray this together. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your son, and I believe he's coming back, and I want to be there for it. So Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. I declare you are the Lord of my life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To further connect with us at Alive, visit us at alivefamily.church. And remember, people matter and Jesus is alive.